you please turn with me in your Bibles to John chapter 1, and our text this evening is John chapter 1, verse 14. Let me begin at verse 1, leading up to verse 14. The beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but came to bear witness about the light. The true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who are born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. It's not an exaggeration to say that correctly assessing the identity of Jesus Christ is a matter of life and death. Who is Jesus? Is he God? Is he man? Our very salvation depends on answering these questions correctly. Ever since Jesus' coming, there have been those who go to one extreme or the other in explaining who he is. Some say he was a mere man. As such, he was a good teacher. He was an example to follow, but in the end, only a son of Mary, only a descendant of David. And most who take this stance will speak about Jesus in the past tense, believing that he died and that the very idea of his resurrection is a hoax. Others go to the other extreme and speak of Jesus as only God. They can't deny that people saw a man walking this earth and that he talked with them and ate with them and did all of the human things. And the way that they explain this all is to say that Jesus appeared to be a man. God was able to take on a human appearance, and so everyone who came into contact with him would have thought that he was a man, but in reality, we are told he was only God. It was like God was wearing a human costume. And then there are those who, avoiding both of these extremes, still arrive at a wrong conclusion of who Jesus is by a new way of thinking about these things that leaves Jesus as neither God nor man. They say Jesus is the God-man in the sense of a hybrid, um, so I don't know of a better way of putting it, a hybrid of God and man. God and man came together in such a way that a totally new type of being arose who is neither totally God nor totally man, but a third kind of creature who bears some of the characteristics of both. There's no doubt that the identity of Jesus is a mystery in the sense of being difficult to understand. At the same time, there are truths about Jesus that we can stand upon as solid and unchanging. Most of these truths have been solidified over the years in the context of the church wrestling with false doctrine. 
The symbol of chalcedon is a formulation of the truths about Jesus that we stand, stand upon, even while admitting that we can't fully grasp it all. So here's what we read in the symbol of chalcedon. We then, following the Holy Fathers, all with one consent, teach men to confess one and the same Son, our Lord Jesus Christ, the same perfect in Godhead and also perfect in manhood, to be acknowledged in two natures without confusion, without change, without division, without separation. The distinction of natures being by no means taken away by the union, but rather the property of each nature being preserved and concurring in one person and one subsistence, not parted or divided into two persons, but one and the same Son and only begotten God the Word, the Lord Jesus Christ. <clears throat> I point out by way of summary the truths that, that are here in this, this statement that the church has stood on. First of all, that Jesus is both God and man. Second, that Jesus has two natures that by coming together in one person still remain the same individually. Third, Jesus is one person, not two persons. His person is the Son of God, God the Word. And so, in sum, Jesus Christ is both God and man, fully God, fully man, in one person, God the Word. And what I want to explain briefly are the two natures of Jesus coming together in Jesus as the symbol of Chalcedon has expressed it, without confusion, without change, without division, and without separation. You understand these words were, are directed against specific errors that arose in theological disputes about the nature of Jesus and the, and the identity of Jesus. And I want to first of all mention the error of Eutychianism. Eutychianism is the error that says that Jesus' human nature was absorbed or swallowed up by his divine nature. Basic problem with this error is that when the divine and human come together in the person of Jesus, there ends up being only one nature. There were other forms of this error called monophysitism, where either the divine or the human nature of Jesus is suppressed by the other, leaving basically only one functioning nature. Or there is, after the divine and human natures come together, only one nature left, as I mentioned a moment ago, this hybrid idea one nature that is neither divine nor human, but some third kind of entity. And along those lines, think of a science experiment where you mix two chemicals together, and what happens? You have a totally new chemical compound that's formed. That's how some have thought of Jesus' two natures coming together. And that's an error. And over against these errors, our Father said that in Jesus there are two natures without change or confusion. In Jesus, there is both a divine and human nature, and their coming together in the person of the word does not change them or confuse them. And then there is the error of Nestorianism. This error so emphasizes the two natures of Jesus that Jesus basically ends up as being two persons, divine person and a human person. And over against this error, the church has said that the two natures of Jesus are without separation, they're found united together, inseparably, in one person. And then there was the error of Apollinarianism, which says that Jesus, while both divine and human, did not have a human mind or will. And over against this error, the church said 
that the two natures of Christ are to be without division. In other words, the idea is that the natures of Christ must not be divided up into their component parts so as to pick and choose which ones Jesus has or doesn't have. He has all of the parts of a human nature and all that belong to a divine nature. In Jesus' two natures, there is nothing left out. He is fully God and fully man. These distinctions, which might sound like just ivory tower theology, really are important as we wrestle with what Scripture means when it says that the Word became flesh. This evening we are going to consider verse 14 under this theme of Jesus, the Word become flesh. We will consider first the meaning of this expression, second, the purpose of the Word becoming flesh, and third, the result of his becoming flesh. So we begin, first of all, with the meaning of this expression of the Word becoming flesh. When John writes that, when he says the Word became flesh, it's important to recognize what this does and doesn't mean. It's important that we get this right because this is John's description of how Jesus the Christ came into this world and how we understand these words has a bearing on our understanding of Jesus' identity as God and man with two natures in one person. So first I would have you notice that the word flesh can have various meanings in Scripture. Sometimes it refers to the depraved nature of man, such as when Paul says, in Romans seven eighteen, for I know that nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh. Or in Galatians five sixteen, um, it also uses the flesh in that same way when Paul writes, but I say walk by the Spirit and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. So flesh then in those instances refers to our human nature under the influence of sin. And that certainly cannot be the meaning here in John 1, 14, for then it would be saying that the word became sinful by taking on man's depraved nature. And scripture clearly contradicts that idea. Hebrews 4.15, for example, says, For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are yet without sin. Yet without sin. It's important to note that the word flesh can also refer simply to the human nature. Apart from any moral implications, it refers naturally to the human body, but also takes in man's desires. Many times in Scripture, there's mention of the desires of the flesh. Desires, that is, that desires that, that belong to the flesh or flow out of the flesh, which indicates that it's a word that can refer to the whole of man's nature, body, and spirit. Now, our flesh, as it came to us from Adam under the curse of sin, is marked by sinful desires. But as believers in Christ, we are new creatures with new desires, and so our flesh is no longer entirely governed by sin. First John makes it clear that the word flesh is not always about our sin nature. In fact, notice John uses the word um, in different ways within his own epistle. In chapter 2.16, we are warned against loving the world because the desires of the flesh are not from the Father, but from the world. Clearly, their flesh referring to sinful desires and, the, and the, uh, the, the depraved nature of man. But then two chapters later, in chapter 4, verse 2, the Apostle John states, Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. So Scripture is not at all, the Apostle John is not at all afraid to say, Jesus Christ has come in the flesh. 
Even in our immediate context, we have verse 13 in reference to human birth as being born of the will of the flesh. Or basically, flesh there refers to human beings, a mother and father who decide to have a child. And so for Jesus to become flesh simply means for Jesus to become a human being with a human body and human soul. And then we have the word become, which can be understood in quite different ways, some of which John does not have in mind here. For instance, when the Bible says that Lot's wife became a pillar of salt, we understand that to mean that she became something new altogether. Before she was a human being, but after becoming a pillar of salt, she was no longer a human being at all, but she was salt. And one thing took the place of the other. The danger then, as applied to the word becoming flesh, is to think that the word started out as God, but became a human being and in that way ceased being God. But that's not the idea. The word became can also be used to indicate someone taking on a new role that doesn't at all take away from what they were before. So, for example, it says also in Scripture that Lot became the father of Moab and Ammon. In becoming a father, he remained Lot. There was no fundamental change in his personhood or personality or the like. The idea is he took on a new role. There was a change in his relationship to others and in his duties and responsibilities. This is the sense in which the word became flesh. The word remained God when he became man. Our Westminster Confession and Catechisms are helpful in describing what it means that in Jesus God became man. In the Westminster Confession of Faith, chapter 8, of Christ the Mediator, we read this, the Son of God, the second person in the Trinity, being very and eternal God, of one substance and equal with the Father, did, when the fullness of time was come, take upon himself man's nature with all the essential properties and common infirmities thereof, yet without sin, being conceived by the power of the Holy Ghost in the womb of the Virgin Mary of her substance, so that two whole, perfect, and distinct natures, the Godhead and the manhood, were inseparably joined together in one person without conversion, composition, or confusion, which person is very God and very man, yet one Christ, the only mediator between God and man. Then we have the Westminster Larger Catechism, question 36, who is the mediator of the covenant of grace? And the answer, the only mediator of the covenant of grace is the Lord Jesus Christ, who being the eternal Son of God, of one substance and equal with the Father, in the fullness of time became man, and so was and continues to be God and man in two entire distinct natures and one person forever. Question 37, how did Christ, being the Son of God, become man? Christ, the Son of God, became man by taking to himself a true body and a reasonable soul, being conceived by the power of the Holy Ghost in the womb of the Virgin Mary of her substance and born of her yet without sin. So notice, he became man by taking to himself a true body and a reasonable soul. We call the Son of God taking on human flesh his incarnation, a combination of the word in or into and the word carne or flesh, so as to be made into flesh. 
God became enfleshed with a true human body, and of course a human body that also included with it a human soul. So when we hear these words of the word becoming flesh, we understand that the word did not stop being God. But rather, God the Son, from that point on, has a human nature united to him in such a way that he is both God and man in the one person of Jesus Christ, the word. As further and really final proof of this point, notice what John goes on to say after the word became flesh. It says he manifested glory that was of the only Son from the Father. That word only indicates that Jesus is the unique Son of God who is Son alone in a certain sense, in a sense unique to him. Historically, the church has expressed this unique relationship within the Godhead of the Son um, from the Father by speaking of the only begotten Son of God, the only begotten Son from the Father. And the idea is that the Son derives his life within the Godhead from the Father. As the eternal word, this begetting is eternal. It's not the same thing as being born or the same thing as being created. It's a unique sonship wherein the Son and Father are ultimately one in essence. And yet in his person, the, 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 the Son derives his being from the Father. And what I would have you to notice as relevant to the word becoming flesh is that even after the incarnation, it says the word remains the only begotten Son of the Father. That unique sonship that belongs only to the Godhead remains true of the word even after the incarnation. He did not lose his divinity by becoming man. This brings us then to what the text tells us about the purpose of his coming. The text states the matter this way, and dwelt among us. John also tells us about the purpose of his coming in the description of Jesus as full of grace and truth. The word becoming flesh allowed Jesus, the eternal word, to dwell among us. Hendrickson, in his commentary, offers the translation, and dwelt among us as in a tent. It's a very literal translation of the Greek. And since the word tent is the word that's used in reference to the Old Testament tabernacle, some have even translated this, and he tabernacled among us. And the idea is that he came to live among us. He took up residence in our midst. Reminded of the Gospel of Matthew and its account of Jesus' birth. The angel Gabriel appears to Joseph and explains that Mary, his betrothed wife, is pregnant through the work of the Holy Spirit. And the angel explains, this is from Matthew chapter 1, verses 21 through 23. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. God with us. That's the idea of the word dwelling among us, which raises the deeper question of why. Why would God decide to become flesh and dwell among us? Why did not the word stay in heaven? What compelled him to become flesh and enter into our life as a man? Now, that purpose isn't directly told us here in these verses, but the rest of scripture makes that purpose clear. 
Matthew stated it when, in the context of Jesus being Emmanuel, God with us, he explained to Joseph that Jesus will save his people from their sins. Hebrews chapter 2, verses 9 through 18, explains the matter quite fully. I'd like to have you turn with me for a moment to Hebrews chapter 2. I'll be reading verses 9 through 18. says, But we see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. For it was fitting that he, for, for whom and by whom all things exist, in bringing many sons of glory, should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. For he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one source. That is why he is not ashamed to call them brothers, saying, I will tell of your name to my brothers in the midst of the congregation. I will sing your praise. And again, I will put my trust in him. And again, behold, I and the children God has given me. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is, the devil and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. For surely it is not angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. Therefore he had to be made like his brothers in every respect, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted." So notice he became man so that he might taste death for everyone. In order that Jesus might have brethren that he could bring to glory, he had to suffer to the point of death in our place. His goal, he says, the writer of Hebrews says here, was to help the offspring of Abraham. Therefore, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. The plan behind Jesus' coming was the salvation of sinners. And to that end, Jesus came as our representative. His plan was to stand in our place and to offer himself as an atoning sacrifice that would satisfy the justice of God and divert his wrath from us. I'm explaining now that concept of propitiation. He came to make propitiation for us. And to do that, he had to become one of us. He also had to be God. Only the word dwelling among us can save us as planned. Our Westminster Larger Catechism gives us a good summary of why Jesus had to be God in order to save us. Question 38, why was it requisite that the mediator should be God? Answer, it was requisite that the mediator should be God, that he might sustain and keep the human nature from sinking under the infinite wrath of God and the power of death give worth and efficacy to his sufferings, obedience, and intercession, and to satisfy God's justice, procure his favor, purchase a peculiar people, give his spirit to them, conquer all their enemies, and bring them to everlasting salvation. Key ideas there are that the divine nature sustained and kept the human nature from sinking as Jesus suffered 
under the infinite uh, wrath of God and the power of death. As the sufferings of no mere man could satisfy God's justice, that Jesus was God gave worth and efficacy to his saving work that ensured his suffering and death on the cross would truly satisfy God's justice and purchase. And that word brings to mind redemption so that Christ would redeem us to be God's peculiar people. This language of being God's peculiar people, that is covenantal language. Again and again in scripture, God summarizes the essence of the covenant relationship with us as his people in Christ as I will be their God and they will be my people. The covenant relationship was symbolized by God dwelling with his people in the tabernacle and temple. For God, the word to dwell among us, that is covenantal language that tells us Jesus' coming was all about God bringing us into his fellowship. Our sin in Adam had broken fellowship, but God from that day determined to restore sinful man back into his fellowship. Right away, he spoke of a son of the woman who would bruise the head of Satan. Later, God's dwelling with his people in the Shekinah glory of the tabernacle and temple spoke of God's grace restoring fellowship with his people. That God dwelt with his people in the tabernacle and, and temple spoke of how God dwells with his people only in the way of our sins being atoned for. But always God, God provides the way for sin to be dealt with and fellowship restored. The sacrificial system of the tabernacle and temple pointed to the suffering and death of Jesus in the place of his people. And so when Jesus appears on the scene and is God with us, we understand that now the reality of what the tabernacle and temple symbolized is coming to fruition in the person of Jesus Christ. God became flesh and dwelt among us because he was determined to restore the friendship and fellowship of him being our God and we being his people. Jesus is God fulfilling the covenant promises. The purpose of Jesus' coming is further expressed in the words of John that Jesus was full of grace and truth, grace being the unmerited favor of God, which was manifested through Jesus in several ways. His messages were filled with grace, with unmerited favor for the guilty as he preached forgiveness of sins through faith in him. His coming was about grace. Think of how he healed the sick, how he cast out demons. He raised the dead. His coming was about grace and coming not to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. He, Jesus is full of grace. He did not come to condemn the world and to give the world what it deserves, but to save the world through his death and resurrection. And being full of truth relates both to his messages and his person. Being full of truth means that he is the reality of the sacrificial system that in types and shadows pointed to him as the redeemer of sinners. The tabernacle, the temple, the, the whole sacrificial system was about pictures. Jesus is the reality. He is the truth. Being full of truth relates also to him being, of course, the word of God, the revelation of God's truth. What he taught what he had recorded in the New Testament through the apostles, these things have brought us to understand truth about ourselves and God like never before. And what he has given us ultimately is a revelation of God himself. The word become flesh 
and being full of truth, everything he did, everything he spoke was a fulfillment and revelation of God's purposes. Later, I'm sure you're familiar with the words, he will say that he is the way, the truth, and the life. And what he came to reveal was really the truth of himself, that God and that he is God uh, and man come to redeem sinners. This brings us to the result. And the third and final point this evening, I point out the result of the word becoming flesh. We find the result in John's words, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father. In other words, um, and we have seen his divine glory, glory that proves Jesus the man is ultimately the word, the Son of God, God himself. That word glory is a Greek word that when used in the translation of the Hebrew Old Testament is the word used when there was a visible manifestation um, and, and often of light that would accompany a theophany. A theophany is what we call an Old Testament appearance of God in human form. In the wilderness, the glory of God was manifested through the angel of the Lord who went before the people in the pillar of cloud by day and in the pillar of fire by night. There was also that glory of the Lord that would descend on the tabernacle and temple in the form of this bright cloud depicting God's presence. It seems that by this glory, we are again being reminded of the tabernacle and temple, which had as their main goal to depict the saving work of Christ. These glorious appearances of God's presence in the Old Testament have been referred to as the Shekinah glory. Remember the Shekinah glory of Jesus himself that took place in his, his uh, earthly life when he was transfigured so that his face shone like the sun and his clothes became white as light. A bright cloud overshadowed Christ as he appeared with Moses and Elijah. This was a rare moment when his divine nature was unveiled and the disciples were allowed to see something of the great glory that Jesus had before his incarnation as the Son of God. The glory that he had while in heaven. Meanwhile, though in a more veiled way, his glory was also seen in other ways, especially in his miracles. He was able to do wonders that pointed to his divinity. He healed the sick, he cast out demons, he raised the dead. He could know the thoughts of men's hearts. He turned water into wine, he stilled the storm. The disciples saw him, they witnessed him doing these things and realized that his glory was none other than the glory of God himself. As one who manifests the very glory of God, Jesus is worthy of your worship and faith. He is the word of God. He is the self-revelation of God. He is our God come in grace to save us from sin. He is our God come to fulfill the realities of the Old Testament types. And as such, he deserves our thanks. And he deserves our praise. The glory of Jesus is the glory that belongs to God himself. And what an amazing thing that God would manifest his glory to us poor uh, poor sinners. And we're not talking, you see, about the glory of judgment. Yes, there will be glory when Jesus appears with his angels to wreak vengeance on Satan and his followers. There will be a certain glory in the display of his justice and wrath. But the glory of which John speaks here is the glory of Jesus dwelling among us in order to reveal to us his love. He became flesh and dwelt among us in order to bring us into his fellowship, 
John says, we have seen his glory. They saw his glory pushing back the curse of sin in those miracles. They saw the glory of his suffering and dying in our place. Let us not forget the glory of seeing the risen Savior victorious over sin. We're talking about the glory of our Savior. And if you are looking to Jesus as your divine and human Savior from sin, recognizing in Him the grace to pay for your sins and in Him the truth of how to be right with God, then you have been given, as John has just said, the right to become children of God. And as saved believers, you will see his glory for yourselves. Praise God, one day we will see his glory. Glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Amen. Let us pray. Father in heaven, uh, we thank you for the gift of the Lord Jesus Christ that you in the person of your Son became flesh, taking upon Uh, yourself, uh, our human nature, body and soul, coming in order to save us from our sins, coming in order to bring us into fellowship with you, a fellowship that we had broken through our sin. Father, we thank you that uh, in Jesus we can see that even from his earthly life, uh, glory that is only of uh, of God, um, your glory, And Father, we also thank you for how he has revealed grace and truth to us, that he is the revelation of your very self, that he is full of grace coming to redeem us from our sins. Father, we thank you. Um, We give praise to you for the, the gift of your son. May we, Father, glorify him. May we recognize him for who he truly is. We thank you that he is one of us and yet truly divine, thus able from every point of view to be our Savior. We thank you and we we praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.